Lord, you spoke the words that called us into existence. And you sent the word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, into the world to reveal yourself to us. You have not left us alone, but you have left us with your Holy Spirit that testifies to the word. And so we pray this morning, as we reflect on your holy word, would you reveal yourself? Would you renew us as your creation? Would you call us to yourself again and call us into purpose in this world that you have made with great love and care and purpose? All this we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, y'all. My name is John, and I am the pastor here, Church of the Incarnation. Happy to be worshiping with you this morning. We are entering into a series on Genesis. It is the Feast of the Holy Trinity, by the way, uh, something we celebrate, right? So the whole liturgical year, uh, starting with Advent, we are beginning to look to the revelation of the Son, of Jesus Christ living among us in and then we talk about how he was revealed among us, right? Uh, on up to uh, Easter when he is resurrected, raised from the dead, and then how he revealed himself uh, after the resurrection. And finally, Pentecost last week, the celebration of the sending of the Holy Spirit. And on this day, the Feast of the Holy Trinity, we're kind of putting it all together, you know? You've got all the pieces, and now we're just sitting back and, and reflecting and wonder about this amazing thing that God has revealed to us. That there is a son given to us and there is a Holy Spirit that abides with us. And we celebrate that on this day. Also on this day, we are kicking off our summer series. We're going to be following the lectionary through the book of Genesis. So we're not going to hit every chapter. It's going to kind of, you know, move forward in, in somewhat of a fast forward speed. And, um, but I am so happy about this. So much of the year we... Of course, we love the gospel. We're a gospel-centered church. So, so much of the year, we're just preaching right out of the life of Jesus, and we celebrate that. But it's kind of fun. We do this often in the summer. Just take a moment. Let's jump into the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and there's so much trinity to be revealed there. Um, and uh, we believe the whole story is, is this good news, um, all pointing towards Jesus and what he did for us. So this morning, we get to take a look at Genesis 1, where we start. Sermon preparations for this week, for me, included a walk in my neighborhood, where I was looking up at the rustling of the trees as the wind passed through, and I was listening to the song of the birds. Something I love about Atlanta is we have so many trees here, and there are so many birds, and I've lived in cities sometimes where you heard birds sometimes, but not as often. And almost seems like almost any time of day now I can walk outside my house in Atlanta and just hear this amazing song. It's almost like if I close my eyes, am I, in, am I in the rainforest or something? There's just so many beautiful songs happening all around me. Sermon preparation also included taking a group of nine-year-old girls on a walk through Henderson Park, uh, not too far from our neighborhood in Tucker, and there's this beautiful lake there. There's woods all around it. And I had these, these nine-year-old girls, some who evidently live a little further in the city than us, and had ostensibly not experienced much of nature. <laughs> and it was wonderful to watch them wonder at what they were seeing, a blue heron or just even some rocks that were there in the stream, and watching them wonder One person put it this way, said, some people, in order to discover God, read books. But there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above, look below, read it. God, whom you want to discover, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things that he had made. Can you ask for a louder voice 
than that. You know who said that? That was none other than St. Augustine, the great bishop who lived in the 300s and wrote some of the most famous and influential books of all time, of course. So this is a man of great learning, a man who writes great books and says, yet there is a book out there and it will tell you so much about God if you will just stop and listen and look and read. And one hope I have for you this morning is that when you leave here, that you will leave with a renewed desire to connect with the wonder of God that can be found in nature. It's this kind of wondrous posture that these kids in Henderson Park had, the kind of thing that Augustine is talking about here, that is required when we approach a text like Genesis. The people that are writing this are literally filled with wonder of God's good creation and the wonder of God himself as revealed through it. Part of what I'm trying to get at this morning is that God, contrary to some of our instincts, is not this kind of divine clockmaker. So some of us think of God as this clockmaker that makes this really intricate, like, you know, universe, and it works and it functions, and he kind of just sets it all up and he winds it up and then kind of leaves it alone, right? And there that clock is just kind of functioning by itself. And there's a sense in which maybe the clock represents like his like, you know, intelligent mind that's able to create a clock like this, but there's a, there's a very little part that he has in it now that he has kind of created it and wound it up and set it into motion. And the God that is revealed in a text like Genesis 1 is very different. He's intimately involved in creating and in sustaining and in superintending the processes of life. And part of what I want you guys to take away this morning is that the language that we have when we think about the naturalistic sciences, and if you don't know, we're a church, at least a leadership here that loves science. And so I'm one of the priests here, but another one of our priests, Jana, uh, she has a master's in, in uh, cellular molecular biology. And uh, she decided to leave academia to go uh, to seminary and, and, and answer a call to the priesthood. But before she, she answered that call, she was doing a PhD at the University of Southern California in neurobiology. And so we are a family that values science greatly and we embrace not uh, pseudoscience, but what we consider mainstream science, the naturalistic sciences. And what I want you to know is that for us, when we think about, you know, those things that Jenna could see under the microscope, these aren't causes to think of, oh, this is a clockmaker, so it makes the world less mysterious or less full of wonder. No, what we're seeing there under the microscope is cause for wonder, right? The God that created it all, that, that, that in a sense did set it in the motion, he superintends these processes that we study. Looking under the microscope just helps us to see the kind of how of how it functions. And what I, what I want you to see is that this world is full of wonder. It's charged with his wonder. He's not just this clockmaker that said it, but he's superintending all that we see. So let's talk about the text. And I want to kind of prepare you this morning as we get into it. Uh, for us, this moment in the Eucharist, uh, between the reading of Scripture, we, we have the sermon that happens at this moment. This for us is normally a moment that's a little more, I would say, preachy than it is teachy. And the sense that I'm usually way more interested in what's the good news in this passage and how does that good news bear on your life, right? Like, how does this point you to Christ and what Christ did for you and how does that change the way you live in the world? And that's what sermons are supposed to do. And I want to just kind of give you a little warning is that this one might be a little more teachy than it is preachy. And part of that reason is that in the kind of churches that I grew up with in the evangelical South, there's just a weird relationship to science and, and to Genesis 1 in the text. And part of what I'm just going to spend a little more time maybe teaching through it um, as a pastoral concern. Because I feel like there's things that we kind of need to talk about as we approach the text. So we can have, a, I would say, a better posture towards the text. The same kind of posture that God might have always intended, right, when he inspired these words. 
And so first, I want to just name something about genre. It's always good when you're reading the Bible to ask, what kind of genre are we reading, right? And so when we read the gospel, we're reading firsthand accounts of people that witnessed what happened when Jesus did something, and they're telling you about it. Now, they're telling you about it in a very stylistic way, and they're telling you about it to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And then when we read uh, something like the Psalms, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Psalms are the liturgy of Israel. This is, this is Israel's hymnal, right? And so that's why often we will sing or read them responsibly or some poetic way because the Psalms are liturgy, right? And there's different forms of genre within the Bible. And so when Paul's writing a letter, he's got a beef with the church in Corinthians, right? And so we know this is a letter that's trying to convince and argue and instruct. And I'm going to read that letter differently than I'm going to read Proverbs or then I'm going to read Psalms, right? It's all the Bible. It's all God's inspired, inspired word. It's all instructing us how to live. But we just got to read the different parts differently because that is how God intended it. That's how the original authors intended it. They had an audience, and they knew that their audience understood the genre. Some of the trouble we get into the modern world is, is some of our, uh, our fellow brothers and sisters, for some of them get into the text, they just don't understand the genre. And if you don't understand the genre, that can get you into trouble. I'm just naming the genre here as far as uh, our, our best Old Testament professors would understand it. Um, one way they might consider this is poetic liturgy. So in the sense that it sounds like a liturgy for a temple text. In the sense that it is doxological. In a sense, it's worshiping the God of creation. It's proclaiming something about him, saying that he is sovereign over all. And so it, is, it has some uh, similarity uh, to the Psalms in that sense. Poetic elements. Well, if you could read Hebrew, Hebrew and you're reading with a Hebrew Bible, you would realize that the first verse has seven words. And that the second verse has 14 words. And when you read down further, when it gets to the culmination, that verse has 35 words, which is seven times five. There are seven days of creation. Not on every day of creation, but seven times in the text we get this phrase repeated, and God saw that it was good. And of course, on the seventh day, God comes and he rests in the creation. And so this is a poetic element that's lost on us if, we don't, if we're not like super good at reading Hebrew. I don't know about you guys, I'm not really good at reading it. I did take a class in it, or two classes that I had to, and I forgot most of what I learned. If I'm uh, not so embarrassed, but I'll admit to you <laughs> that I lost it. I've really lost it. Uh, but if we could read it, we would know these things. They would be intuitive to us. So there's tons of stylistic and poetic elements in it. Some have described it as exalted prose. So maybe it's more prose than it is poem, but there are poetic elements to it so that it has this kind of elevated, stylized nature to the reading. Genesis is worship. Genesis 1, it's praising God for his sovereignty over creation and the good purposes for which God has created it. That's a little bit about the genre of this text. Let's now get into the text itself. Verse 1. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, if you guys are hearing this text, this translation is the NRSV that we use every week, might sound a little different. Um, then I know I grew up reading the NIV a lot. Also before that, the KGV, the King James Version. These are all great versions. And of course, the translators are all working with the Hebrew. And so there's nuances that come out in different translations that are, that are helpful. Um, if we think about the words that I might be more familiar with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, it means the same thing as when, because God created the heavens and the earth. That is like a summary of what we're about, what's about to happen, right? So it's not God created the heavens and the earth and then something else comes after it. It's a summary of like, we're about to talk about what happened when God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then, of course, verse 2, the earth was complete chaos, or as I grew up here, without form and void. And I want to talk about that. Notice that there already, when God began to create the earth, there already is an earth. <laughs> and it's without form and void, or it's chaotic. And God hasn't begun to create yet, but there's already waters. <laughs> and there's darkness. And so we might ask ourselves, what is the question? Now, as Christians, we believe something that God created the, all of creation ex nihilo out of nothing, right? So there was nothing. And so we actually believe that all of matter that exists came into existence by God's design. But what you need to know is that this isn't the only text about creation in the Bible. There's several creation narratives in it. And it just turns out that this text isn't talking about how God created matter out of nothing. In other words, in this text, the matter already exists. And so the creative act is less about the formation of matter. Now, I know we're about to get a little philosophical, so I might be losing some of you here, but I'm going to do my best to explain this. There's this word in philosophy called ontology. It can be scary to learn a new word. Say it with me, ontology. You can say that word. So, of course, ontology means the study of ont is the Greek prefix or suffix or whatever, meaning be. So it's the study of being. It's the ology of being. So what does it mean to exist, right? And of course, this is like super philosophical, but everyone kind of has a general idea of what it means to exist. So let's imagine that I say, this ambo exists. What, what, how would we think about that? Well, if I thought about it in terms of a material ontology, we would ask, what does it mean that this granite material is here, right? And so we could describe its material existence and how it came into being, right? How did granite form, right? So that's a material way of talking. What does it mean that this exists? Now let's imagine something different. We've got a restaurant a few doors over called El Quetzal. It's a Guatemalan restaurant. I encourage you guys to eat there if you haven't yet. It's good. It's super basic, good Guatemalan food. I eat there maybe once a week. What does it mean for Quetzal to exist? Well, we can think about its material existence, right? Like the tables, like when were they created or how did they come into existence, right? Or the food itself or the people that are working there. But another way to think about it is, okay, Quetzal is maybe incorporated. When did that corporation come into existence and how did that, like what makes a restaurant, when can you say the restaurant now exists, right? And so some of us might say, okay, when it's incorporated, it exists. Or some of us might say, okay, when they have their license, right, <laughs> to serve food, then they're open and they can, they can go for business, right? And then some of us might say, okay, when it's finally serving food, when it's finally functioning the way it was meant to function, and it's serving food, and you can go in there and eat something and buy something and walk out satisfied, then you know it's, it's working. And what ancient Near Eastern scholars will teach us is that almost all of, so by the way, this text is written in the ancient Near East, probably while the Israelites are in Babylon in captivity. And this isn't the only text about how a God created something in the ancient Near East. So the Babylonians have ideas and the Assyrians have ideas and uh, the Egyptians have ideas, right? And so we can read and know what ancient Near Eastern people thought and how they thought. And almost all of them thought about creation this way, more like the restaurant than in the material sense more in the functional sense. And so in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, something exists when it has purpose and function. And so in a sense, the opposite of existence, and I know this is weird, but we're trying to get into the world of the Bible and understand how these people thought, that thought very differently than us. For them, the opposite of existence is chaos, is formless and void. It doesn't mean that the material isn't there, but the material doesn't have its proper function. And so part of what I want you to know, as we are going to see as we move through the days of creation, that often in these days of creation, surprising to us, if you study it, there's nothing actually material being created. <laughs> like I often think of creation, okay, now God made some cool new material thing. But often things are simply being given form and function. By the way, uh, two books I'll recommend on this. Uh, one is John Walton's. He's a professor at Wheaton. We've got some Wheaton grads among us. 
Um, he's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton, which is a really great evangelical school near Chicago. He wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. And I encourage you, take, your, take a note, you know, put it in your iPhone or something. Go get that book. It's a great book. Um, I just discovered, ostensibly on Audible, it's free. So if you're an Audible subscriber, um, I remember reading the book maybe 15 years ago, and I was delighted to be able to listen to it on the way back uh, from Florida. And so um, that's a great book. And then through, as we go through Genesis, we'll use a lot Walter Brueggemann's commentary on Genesis uh, in the interpretation series. And Walter Brueggemann is just a great uh, Old Testament scholar. He was actually here at Columbia in Atlanta and um, one of the most, you know, renowned Old Testament scholars. And so we'll use his commentary a lot, uh, just give some credit where credit's due on those. So let's get into the text. In verse 1, what does God do? He creates light. Or actually just says, let there be light. And then he separates light from darkness. And so in doing so, he creates night and day. And this we can see as the function of time. God is ordering time out of chaos. John Walton points out that even we in physics, we can think of light in material terms of like particles and stuff. And by the way, I don't know a ton about physics and light. But he notes that in uh, ancient Near Eastern world, they did not think of light in any term of material. So even God bringing light into being is not creating matter from nothing. There's literally a non-material thing happening here in verse 1. And then verse 2 says, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and separate the waters from the waters. Or some of us grew up reading, Let there be a firmament. And at this point, if you're thinking, you're probably thinking, what the heck is that talking about? What is this dome? Well, tell me more about this dome. I'd like to know. I was reading in the Hebrew study Bible, and they're like, yeah, this actually literally means like a metal, like a hammered out metal sheet. Tell me more about this metal dome. So this is the, the picture in ancient cosmology. By the way, the, the sea and the ocean for Hebrews is seen as this like chaotic, super scary thing. And so the beginning, that's all there was, is like darkness, that's scary. And then this like water, but the land is actually a mix in the water. And everything's just kind of jumbled and chaotic in there. And so what God is starting to do, he's starting to separate and divide and bring order to this very chaotic existence. And so the first day, he separates the light from the darkness and he orders it so that there's night and there's day. And then on day two, he's separating out the waters from the waters. Now what you have to know is that ancient cosmology like the understanding of how the universe is, is very different from our cosmology. And this, and I'll, I'll get more into this in a second, but in the Bible, God is not revealing to the people science. It's not like they're unscientific people and he's there to teach them how science works. No, God is there to reveal to him, he's there to reveal himself to them and his plan of salvation to them in the language and in the science that they currently understand. So he's not there to rock their scientific worldview. So just so you know, this is their understanding of how the, how the world is that they live in. They think they live on land and that there's this water. And then that above, there's actually water as well. So for them, there's like an ocean up there. And he, the Hebrews are saying God separated this water from that water and created a firmament or something solid to prevent the water from coming down on us. And so when it rains, in a sense, water is coming down from the water that's above, Right? And these are desert people, so they, all, they also would have had springs coming from below. So they got their water either from the water falling from above or the water that's coming up above from the springs. And so in their mind, what's up above is solid. Now, of course, you know, we've sent a few people into space, right? Now at this point, and we realize that it's actually not solid up there. It's, you can go through it. It's cool. But this is the idea of the cosmology. And this doesn't mean that these people are, are stupid. They're actually very smart, intelligent beings. Like, they're just as smart as we would have been. They had limited access to technology and telescopes and some of the things that we have. And so they were making the best out of their sense. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that God isn't here to, like, rock their scientific world when he gets revealing to, like, his love for them and how he created them. He's speaking to them in terms that are readily available to them. And so if there's anything material, like, again, the, what I'm trying to tell you is the big thing that's happening here is that God is separating. Everything's chaotic, and he's separating this water from that water so that the, the universe has now become a little bit more livable. He's bringing order, order, and he's naming things. If there's anything actually materially created, 
it would be this thing you would think of the firmament, which we actually don't believe in at all, right? So again, nothing material, only functionally created. I just want to go a little further on the science thing so you guys can kind of understand this. A few examples from the Bible. One is in the idea of human physiology. How they have a sense of how the human body works, and God isn't at all worried about changing their minds on this. Because they, uh, you know, again, have a limited, they're very thoughtful people, but they have limited access to the technology we have in, in modern medicine. For them, where your thinking and your intellect happens isn't in the mind, but in the organ called the heart. And so if you'll just go in the BibleGateway.com and put in heart and search how many times heart comes up, it's all over the Old Testament. And things like this are said, Genesis 6, 5. The, law, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The thoughts of the heart. Now, God is revealing this passage. This is the inspired word of God, but he's not worried to say, oh, God knows that you're thinking evil all the time. And by the way, you think you're thinking those evil heart thoughts in your heart, but you're really thinking them in your head. No, right? God, God's not worried about that, right? God lets us be where we are. Here's the good news. The thing is, science is always changing. Like what we consider scientific consensus right now is not the same as scientific consensus 100 years ago. And guess what? I hate to disappoint you, but in 100 years from now, Scientific consensus isn't going to be what it is now. And so the thing we don't want to do is, and this is what a lot of us would want to do, or at least if you grew up in a more fundamentalist family like mine, you want to take the best scientific ideas you can find right now and somehow try to figure out how Genesis 1 is validating what it is you believe right now. And the problem is that science has changed, you know. I mean, you just think about a thousand years ago. Think about Galileo not that long ago, right? Science is always changing. And so we're not trying to force our modern scientific worldview on the Bible. What we're trying to do is ask, like, what, what did this text teach about God and the nature of his creation and what it means that he spoke order and brought all the world into being? And how do we just celebrate that and wonder and, like, let that be a way to, like, excite us and to wonder at how amazing God is in his wonderful ways? One more example I'll give on this. Think about embryology. Think about Psalm 139, 13. For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Again, is this a text about God's literal hands in there knitting us together? Well, we know a lot, right, about how these molecules come together, right? And how, how about a mother eats food and like how it all gets put together, right? And how amazing the body is, right? We know so much and we can take pictures in there and see embryos and all these things. Am I somehow supposed to like divide this in my faith? Absolutely not. Like I can describe what happens in molecular processes and I can also say it was the divine hand of God that was superintending those processes as I was put together in my mother's womb. You get what I'm saying? God isn't a clockmaker. He is intimately involved with what is happening. And so just in the same way when you think about embryology, about like how there's more than one way to talk about it, right? One, we're talking about a purpose. Like God has a purpose and a plan and a design, and that is true. And what science isn't designed to tell me is what's the purpose of a thing? It's actually beyond uh, the brackets of science to talk about purpose. Once you get into purpose, you have left the realm of science and you're getting into philosophy or metaphysics or religion. And those are just different disciplines. And that's totally fine. Science in, is, is by its design not intended to, to, to talk outside of those parameters that it has set for itself. And so all I'm trying to say is in the same way I can think about embryology in this verse and celebrate that in modern science, the same way I can think about naturalistic processes that God had set in place to bring about life and also celebrate the purposes that we're learning about here in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? Hopefully. By the way, I'm going to do my best in this sermon to talk about these things that I think are really important. I'm just going to scratch the surface, you know. So go buy that book or uh, call me up. I'm working for one more week before the summer's out. So uh, we can have lunch this week. All right. What day are we on? Okay. So we're talking about the second day when God divides the waters by creating the dome and a firmament. And... Um, then in day three, 
God gathers the waters into one place so that the dry land appears. And he calls the land earth. And the word in Hebrew, earth and land, is really the same thing. So he calls the land land, and he calls the waters seas. Notice again, there's not an idea that he's creating materially the land. It's the idea that it's jumbled up in the water, and he brings the land out of the water. And the big thing he's doing here is he's separating and he's naming. And naming gives function. He's calling it into being and saying what it's good for. So on day three, God creates the land. And then we have a bonus creation. He was doing that, and then there's this bonus that happens. He says, let the land bring forth vegetation. And at this point, we can see how God has began to order a world that is going to be able to sustain life. We've got night and day. We've got rain that comes down, and we've got air that we can breathe. We've got land that we can walk in. And now, out of that, God says, let vegetation come forth from the land. Then we get into day four. And what I want you to see is that days four, five, and six are going to mirror days one, two, and three. One way we can think about it is that in days one through three, God is dealing with what you might call the chaos or the formless. And then on days four, five, and six, he's dealing with the void. He's filling it, right? So what's the problem when God began is that things were chaotic without form, needed to be separated out, and there was void. They weren't full, full of anything that was going to, like, be exciting. And so God, in the first three days, is going to separate things out and deal with the chaos, and now he's going to deal with the void. He's going to start filling. So where does he start when he goes with filling? Where they're going to match the days. So if you remember day one was light. Now in day four, he's going to fill the firmament. Again, he's like putting the stars up in that, that sheet metal up there. The stars and the moon and the sky and the sun, right? So he's putting, he's filling them in with the created things. And then on day five, which mirrors day two, the separating of the sky and the sea, what is he going to do? He's going to fill the sky and the sea, right? He fills the sky with the birds and he fills the sea with the fish. God likes things to be filled. He likes life. And so now he can get to the work of filling creation with the things that he loves. And then in day six, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind. Remember on day three, created the land. Now what is he doing? He is filling the land with the animals. Also remember how on day three we had a bonus creation, right? There was land and the bonus was vegetation. Well, on this day we get a bonus as well. It's in verse 26. Then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves upon the earth. God creates humans and creates them in his image. How are we imaged after the likeness of God? Well, I think there's a lot of answers we could give to that. There's a lot of special ways in which we image God. But especially here in this text, we see a particular way. Is that we image God and that we share in his sovereignty over creation. You see, this is a text about how God sovereignly calls creation in the being. And says that it is good and he blesses it. And now he's doing the work of sustaining it. And he does the work of making sure that it has everything it needs to flourish. And after doing this, he says, let us create humans in our own image according to our likeness. 
and let these humans have dominion over the animals. Now, what's strange is that some verses like these have been used by Christians, it seems like especially in America, to say something like, well, God gave us dominion over creation and the animals, so we can kind of just do whatever we want. Because, <laughs> like, we're, like, number one. And, like, we rule, so we get to kind of to do, you know, whatever we want with the environment. But actually, this idea is totally contrary to what this text is trying to say to us. Because the image of God is a good creator God that loves creation and he orders it rightly for its flourishing. And he provides it with everything it needs. And he is vital for sustaining it and making it work well. And then he creates us and he invites us into this work. You ever invite someone into some work? Like you started something, maybe you started a company or you say, you say all right, now you're going to work with me. And you invite them into that vision that you had, that thing that you're building. And that's what God does with us. He's like, I got a project. And the project is about the right ordering. It's about naming things well. It's about not being chaotic and not confusing things. It's about setting things up for their flourishing. In the Hebrew tradition... The king is seen as a shepherd, a good shepherd. And you think about what a shepherd does with sheep. He provides for them. He brings them to pastures where they can eat. They're not seen as disposable. They're animals that need to be nurtured and, and protected. And this is the image of a good king, and it's the image of God, and it's, and it's our vocation as imaging God, to be shepherds of creation. We are to be the lords over creation in the same way that Christ is the Lord of the church. What does he do? He humbles himself. He lives as a servant among us. He dies on our behalf, right? And so when we think about lordship of creation, we're thinking about it in the terms of Bible lordship, not the way the Gentiles lord over people. We're trying to become lords in the way that God does it. And then I want to point out that it isn't just the females that are created in the image of God. And it isn't just the males that are created in the image of God. The text says, male and female, he created them to reflect his image. And what that tells me is that there is something necessarily communal about bearing the image of God. It's something that we're called into to do together. We're called to be human as male and female. God calls us and then he blesses us. And he gives us this work to do. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This is the call from God to be faithful, agents of his creative goodness in the world. And this is Genesis 1, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the rest of Genesis. And this is essentially the drama of the story. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be his agents of goodness in the world. And the drama is, will the people that he created be faithful? Will they be faithful? And part of that drama is, if they're not faithful, will God be faithful to his creation despite our faithfulness? And we're going to be talking about that week in and week out of what it means or where the story goes. It's a great story because it's an open-ended story. All the answers aren't there in the first chapter. It's an exciting story. Will the people be faithful? And what's going to happen if not? It's a fun story. There's tons of drama. I invite you to stick around for it. Day seven is Shabbat. It's the Sabbath. That's what seven, that's what the word means. The text says, on the sixth day, God rested from the work he had done. I'm sorry, on the sixth day, God finished 
the work he had done. It was complete. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. You might have this idea of maybe you purchased a new property, maybe you're going to move into a home, but the property is an old property in complete disarray. And so there's some old bushes that are there that have totally grown up, and there's vines all over them, and then there's like no grass growing. It's just like super like crazy rocks everywhere. Maybe some, somebody left a bunch of junk in the yard, so there's drunk, junk all over, and there's thorn bushes growing up. Have you ever seen like a, just a crazy property like this? And so I want you to imagine you spent like six days, you spent the whole week. Maybe you're going on vacation and you're like, all right, I'm going to fix up this yard. And so you, you cut back the bushes and then you're going to separate the weeds from the good plants, right? And then you're going to clear out all the rocks and the thorn bushes. And maybe you're going to lay down new soil and you're going to plant some, some grass. You're going to put that sod there, right? And then maybe you're going to build some, some plant beds and then you're going to fill them with flowers, Right? And you can almost think of these six days of creation as like doing that. Like God is clearing out all the chaos and then he's putting the world together in a beautiful, amazing fashion. And then you can imagine on the seventh day what God does is he takes his, his, his chair and just sits it on his porch. And he sits down and he says, oh, wait up, one more thing. And he gets up, I forgot this, and he goes over, turns on the sprinkler, and then he just goes down and sits. And he's just sitting there watching the sprinkler go. And he's just enjoying the work that he's done. It wasn't anything to look at before he started. But now it's this beautiful landscaped yard. And it works and it functions. And he set it into motion. He installed the sprinkler system. And the sprinkler system is going all according to his plan. And it's not that there isn't anything else for God to do. You know, you got to still mow the lawn, right? You still got to take some weeds out every now and then. Maybe you're going to do some fertilizer. You got to make sure the sprinkler system's working. There's still some maintenance and sustaining that's going to happen. But on the seventh day, it's a day for God to rest and look at and enjoy this thing that is, in a sense, set into motion. He's not going to have to do the kind of work that he's already done, right? There's a little bit of work ahead of him, but it's a different kind of work. And that's kind of the picture that we get here of God on the seventh day. When Bible scholars and ancient Near Eastern scholars hear the word God rested, they hear temple text. They start thinking of temple text because in the ancient Near East, when a God rests, they rest in their temple. And when creation stories were told in places like Babylon, where the Israelites are living, or places like Egypt, often they would talk about how the gods created all these things. And then it was also a story about how that God created a temple, like in Babylon, founded this temple. And then after everything was created, that God would come and rest in that temple. In fact, the word temple in Hebrew is the same word for house. So a temple is simply a house where a God rests, or where a God lives. And you can imagine how this text would have heard, what it would have said to, to the folks that would have heard it. The God of Israel is the God that creates everything. He's the one that creates the heavens and the earth. And he made it for his purposes, and he calls it good, and he calls it blessed. And when he's done with his work on the seventh day, God moves into the house that he has created. The entire cosmos is a temple for God. That's why we get texts in the Bible that say things like the earth is full of God's glory. And, that, and, and the earth is his footstool, uh, footstool, right? We get these texts about how this is... God can't be contained in a temple, right? If you think about the dedication when, when Solomon is dedicating that temple in Jerusalem, even there he says, we know that, God, you can't be contained, right? That you fill all of the cosmos. And so this is a text that is telling us that all of the earth is filled with his glory and that God is intimately connected with his creation, 
I told you this morning that I wanted to just mostly focus on kind of what is going on here and kind of focus more on the teaching aspect and the preaching aspect. But as I close up, I want to ask the question, what is the gospel according to Genesis 1? As I said, most scholars would, would believe that this text was written while uh, Israel was in exile in Babylon. And the Babylonians had their story. And this was their story. They had a God named Marduk. And their story was that our God, Marduk, is more powerful than your God. And so our God allowed us to come to your city, Jerusalem, and to destroy your temple and to, and to raise your city to the ground and take you back to us as captives. And so we know that our God is more powerful than your God. And we know that because you live here as our captives. And you live here in our great city, which is much bigger and much greater than your city. And in our economy, which is much bigger and greater than your economy. And in our military complex, which is much greater than your military complex, right? All of those things. And you can imagine what it might have been like for God to reveal himself in a different way to these people, to these Israelites. In the middle of their captivity, in the middle of these stories about how they are inferior, they begin to tell a different story. And I would describe it as a story about the gentle sovereignty of their God. And by sovereign, I mean that God is Lord over all. And so they would have said, yes, our God is Lord over all. And yes, he created you Babylonians in this great city. And it's by his sovereignty that we have been allowed to be here. He created everything. Yes, you rule, but it's only by the, by the, the sovereignty of the creator. And as I studied this text and as I studied lots of commentaries on it, this idea of gentle sovereignty kept coming back to me in the sense of like a sovereignty like you're sovereign over your kids. Like you do your best to structure and to order their lives, right? Like you were involved in bringing them into being, right? And you provide for them and you, you work to sustain their lives. But in it, there's also a certain amount of freedom. That's what I mean by gentle sovereignty. It's the softer sovereignty and that my kids still get to make a lot of choices. And that the one thing at the end of the day, I can't control their hearts. I can try to tell them the purpose for which they're made and what this life is all about. But I don't get to control their hearts. I can't make them love me. I can tell them it's their job as my, as my kid to love me. But I've got to work to win over their hearts. I really do. For some reason, they just seem to love their mom just naturally. I don't know how it works, but especially for some of them, I feel like I have to work really hard to win over their love. And this is the kind of gentle sovereignty we see in God's creation. And it's amazing. It's, it's not like the, you know, deism is like the clockmaker idea that God just sets it so totally separated. And then there's this other idea that's equally wrong, like pantheism. So like basically uh, creation and God are the same thing. So, you know, God is in everything and everything is God. And it's not that either. It's something very different. God is very different from creation, and yet he is not at all disconnected. He's like a parent that is just all eyes on the, all on the kid, not, not distracted, but just there in the room. And this is the story that Israel is telling in the midst of Babylon, that there is a God that is Lord over everything and is sovereign. And it's true. We're here, in a sense, because, because of his gentleness, because of his willingness to let us go our own way. There's some drama in the story. But the question is, will God have God's way? Will his purposes for creation be fulfilled? And of, of course, for us as Christians, we see this story climaxing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can think about a text like Ephesians 1, where Paul is talking in Ephesians 1, 7 about Christ and how we have redemption in his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. And he has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his pleasure, what's his will that he set forth in Christ? A plan for the fullness of time 
to gather up all things. That is to gather up all creation. Things in heaven and things in earth. Friends, this is where the story leads. God wants to gather up all things, all creation in Christ. All creation is from him and for him. And his plan is to gather it back again. As we'll sing today, I love this song and it's so instructive for what to do with a passage like this. This is my father's world and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, maybe in the south we'd say the magnolia white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. The rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Friends, as you go on from here and experience the wonder of nature of your children and of your children, may you be reminded that this is your father's world, that this good creation he blessed is a world that he made for you to enjoy and also to help him superintend. And as you go on from here and you find yourself in pagan Babylon, a culture ruled by violence and money and power and coercion and market forces, a place like Atlanta where so many are offering services to so many different gods, may you find yourself singing, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen.